All right, so welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. I'm here with Default Friend, who is the host of a Substack and also the podcast, The Computer Room. So for those who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about what's behind your project and the kind of stuff that you cover? Yeah, um, so I'm a little bit all over the place um, because I do, I do like, I, I use my Substack sort of as like a, an emotional scrapbook and like a scrapbook for like different kinds of writing. Um, but I also have like a separate, like more cohesive project, but given that I don't have like separate identities or even websites for each, they all sort of bleed into like one kind of confusing thing. Um, but my, my research and a lot of my, my journalism and, and culture commentary is, uh, you know, focused in internet, contemporary internet culture and internet history, which I feel like has been mostly forgotten or cherry picked as, you know, you know, as it's convenient, as it might make a good opening anecdote for, you know, a piece about something more grounded in the present. Um, so I, you know, I interview people about their, their digital lives. Um, I believe, I don't know for sure, but, uh, you know, word on the street is I have the most uh, qualitative interviews on Tumblr that have, oh, wow. you know, that has ever been done, okay. um, including in, in academia. Uh, and, um, yeah, the computer room is, uh, you know, I hesitate to call it a podcast because it's it's so, uh, it's more like audio note taking, I guess, that I share mm -hmm. with the public. But, um, you know, I mean, it, it is a it is a podcast. But um, I talk to people about their their online experiences, um, and you know, if they if they do work that's uh, salient to any sort of internet studies. Um, I asked them about that. I've had a really wide range of guests. So like everyone from like Mark Andreessen, who, uh, you know, is the progenitor of the web browser, uh, to John Zerzan, who's probably the most famous uh, anarcho-primitivist, uh, you know, besides Ted Kay, of course. Uh, and yeah, tons of like random people on, on Twitter and, and, and elsewhere who might have something interesting to say, um, you know, artists, just yeah, anyone who who has a unique perspective on digital life. Yeah, so I want to talk more about Tumblr because like, you know, I remember, unfortunately, my Tumblr days and like, I don't know, it was so consuming and it like brought out sides of me that I'm definitely not proud of. But in your research on Tumblr and its its whole formation, its influence, like, I don't know, what do you find to be most um I don't know, like, what do you think is most uh, significant about Tumblr and the way that it has impacted uh, so much of our culture? So there's, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to attack this, but I think probably the most visible thing is, so Tumblr got a lot of its user base um, when other, you know, other digital spaces for, for fans um, weren't really working for those communities. Um, the big one is LiveJournal. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a there's an academic, I believe her name is Casey Fiesler, if I'm remembering correctly, who's done a lot of work on like these sort of digital migrations. So LiveJournal was experiencing a lot of different problems. It had a lot of outages. Um, it was, uh, I believe at this time, bought by a Russian company. And um, there was new, uh, you know, there's some censorship that was happening. Um, there's a lot of different there's a lot of different difficulties that made it difficult for um, fan communities to continue to thrive there. So some of them migrated to um, an archive of our our own, which is uh, you know run by a nonprofit that's that's focused on fandom and studying fandom and the, the preservation of fan works, primarily fan fiction. And then the other part um, went to Tumblr, um, and fans are like real are really really important. Uh, Group, you know, any fandom is a very important group to get um, onto social media sites because uh, it's, you know, fandoms really defined as like a model of engagement, right? They, they consume the most, they're the most passionate, they uh, do lots of free labor, they're very vocal of feedback. So if you, um, you know, if you're creating an app, you, you want to, you, like, it's, it's smart to say, like, which, um, you know, like, let's get like people who like love baseball or like love Marvel or love the Grateful Dead on because they're going to really, that's really what's going to help uh, growth. Um, so they all go to Tumblr and this is, this is a big piece of how Tumblr starts, um, starts revving up and media properties uh, know that fandom 
is really anchored on this site. So they're paying a lot of attention to what's going on on Tumblr. Um, sort not totally separately, right? Because you know a lot of teenagers are super fans of different things, K-pop, Marvel, you know what have you. Um, but you know, sort of separately, Tumblr is also extremely popular uh, with adolescents. I think like in 2013, um, it was you know in the top five uh, sites. I think it might have actually been number one for uh, you know that that very precious like 13 to 17 year old uh, age bracket. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the all of the sort of peculiarities of fandom start meeting the peculiarities of adolescence. So even like adult fans who, um, you know, you know, who are like re- are super users of the site. Um, adolescents also tend to have this sort of the same sort of myopia. And that's what really starts creating this like very unique culture that we think of as like Tumblr culture. Yeah. Um, this, you know, two, two groups of misfits, right? Um, and then plus with the user interface, there's not like, there's not these like high barriers of entry anymore, right? So it's like mm-hmm. everything sort of starts melding together and you get things like super hulock, um, which like for people who don't know, it's the melding of supernatural Doctor Who and Sherlock and becoming like, you know, one, <laughs> its own beast, right? Yeah. It's, its own okay. fandom. Um, and so this is what, this is what lays the groundwork for this sort of like eccentric culture. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a lot of people who I speak to feel like they were, they were radicalized. I mean, and that's a, it's a really loaded word to use, but, uh, you know, they, you just spend so much time that even if you aren't there, um, for fandom or you don't believe sort of the stated, uh, you know, the, the stated etiquette of these communities, you're looking at it so much, you start internalizing it. Right. So you have, so this is, you know, this is a setup. At the same time, digital publications are slashing budgets. And um, this isn't to say, you know, I've, I've, I've described this mechanism a few times. Um, so, you know, I want to be very clear. When I say that they're slashing budgets and that, you know, journalism takes a hit, I don't mean to suggest there was no good journalists or that people don't know their craft or that everyone sucked at their job. That's definitely not the case, right? There's plenty of, of great people doing great work. However, you have, by the, you know, by the same token, you have people who, you know, like freelancers who may not have a journalism background who don't necessarily know, you know, the the craft, right? Who don't know the how to, you know, don't understand what journalistic integrity means. Not because they're malicious, but they, it's, it's it's something you need to learn. Um, as well as people who are really underpaid, like you know, like thirty thousand dollars a year, who are told they need to, uh, you know, pump out a certain number of articles a day, and they need to ha- it needs to reach a certain amount of traffic for them to to keep their jobs. And they're doing this with the promise that maybe one day they'll get to the prestige publication like the New York Times and maybe they'll yeah. get a book deal, and, right? So everyone's sort of competing for this. So you have these two groups of people and obviously that atmosphere is not going to generate uh, great work, right? Um, so you see like a few trends start to emerge. You have sort of the um, like watered down version of like the vice authenticity sort of scraping. So it's like, uh, you know, gritty and, and real. Um, you have confessional writing to the tune of like the exo Jane, it happened to me. Um, and then you have these sort of these explainers, which are, which are for, we also have like, we also have listicles, right? But, you know, the real important part is like these explainers that are sort of, um, you know, exposing these communities that are like super weird, right? And this is um, a little bit before we get to the, the cancellation uh, style of clickbait uh, that is, you know, so well known, so maligned uh, today that was really like set into, uh, you know, that Gawker really lit the fuse on. Um, anyway, so you have all these freelancers and, and journalists. The freelancers are often doing these for like fifty dollars a pop. Mm-hmm. Um, and where are they getting all these article ideas? They're scraping them from uh, Reddit, um, uh-huh. which is, you know, I think pretty well known but they're also scraping them from tumblr and um so tumblr is like you know this is very really fertile ground for all of this right um and you have like a 
because of this sort of like collision of different niche communities, it's so frequent. You have like stuff that seems like really weird, right? Yeah. Um, the famous example and the one that's been best documented and the one that I always use because I think it's just so illustrative of this mechanism is uh, with homies. So homies are fibristophiles, which are people who uh, sexualize, um, you know, murderers and, and criminals. Okay. Um, and this was right around the, the Aurora shooting, which is when that, you know, that orange haired dude, uh, you know, James, his name is James Holmes, Holmes mm -hmm. went into a theater and, and you know, he shot up, he, he shot up a, a movie theater, right? Yeah. So a small group of people on Tumblr is possibly even in jest sexualizing this man. And it gets reported on as though it's a, a huge movement of, of, you know, teen girls who are, who are going crazy over, you know, this murderer. And, um, you know, at first it's, it's, it gets reported in, in Buzzfeed. And then you have, you also have a thing happening at this time where people are, you know, if one thing's doing well, it gets copied and sometimes it's even plagiarized. Right. So it spreads in this sort of like the Buzzfeed tier of publications. And then, um, a tear up, which is like your CNNs, your MSNBCs, um, right? Like, you know, you're, maybe they're not prestige publications, but they, they're 24 hour news and they need to be pumping out articles too. They catch wind of this and they, um, they start reporting on it. But the truth is, right? These articles make it sound like it's a big group of people, but it was really just, you know, shit posters or like a few weirdos. Yeah. However, once it gets published and once people, you know, hear about it, they some people hear these things and they're like, actually, you know, that he is hot, right? Or like that, or that's weird. I want to get, you know, I want to be involved in that. Right. Um, and it grows the community. And it and what happens is in searching for clickbait, uh, you know, journalists engineered a community that would have, you know, either been very niche forever or just sort of, you know, slipped under the radar and would have been forgotten as the, you know, as the feed refreshed. Yeah. Um, but this, you know, it's not just this situation. This happens a bunch of times. Arguably, this may have happened with um, Joe Garcinayev, who was a Boston bomber who allegedly had all these teen girls who loved him. Like how how many wow. were there, right? Were the numbers high enough to constitute this crisis? Um, it happens with certain um, gender identities that seem uh -huh. um, eccentric or, you know, and, and when I say, you know, certain gender identities, I'm speaking of like, uh, you know, aerosexuals or, yeah, or sorry, yeah. or, you know, whatever, like things that are just um, gender identities and sexualities, things that seem just like there's one of them in the world. And it's, it's we've never heard this word before. Yeah. And this, it, you know, this happens again and again and again. And you can take a few key stories and trace them, um, you know, through sort of these like hoops of like, you know, uh, misinterpretation and telephone. And it, it really is the, you know, it really is this mechanism of scraping from from Tumblr, which is already weird, and you already have the problem of people getting sort of sucked into it, and then reifying these these trends that aren't really trends or trends that are trends, um, and breathing life, you know, breathing more life into them than is perhaps deserved. And then, of course, the yeah. other um, the other dimension here is media properties who have you know quite a bit of stake in these communities are also encouraging these communities to stay alive so there's all these different angles where this like dysfunction is being encouraged and it's like um i think it's i think it's really uh it's it's really overlooked as um you know a, a, a place of impact um i think a, i think something that people misunderstand about my work is and where i see a lot of my criticisms come from are people who think that i'm saying that like queer theory was, uh, you know, invented on on Tumblr or you know something like this, or if not yeah. queer theory, something else. That's uh, that's of course not true, but I think that it spread in the way it did because of social media and also like, you know, think there's all sorts of words that if you were like cognizant in like the 90s or even early 2010s, um, meant one thing and today means something you know different entirely, yeah. and that happens because these communities sort of reinterpret things and, um, you know, and, and their reinterpretation gets reported as fact. And it's this really weird feedback loop that's existed for a long time, but I think was particularly bad as uh, these digital publications uh, yeah. were, were stressed. Anyway, that was, sorry, if it, that was like eight minutes long. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, but it clarifies a lot because it, it makes me think about my own experience with Tumblr because 
I think I was, um, I was probably like 19 or 20 at this point and I was on stumble upon and that's why I found it. So Tumblr came up randomly and I ended up spending like the whole rest of the afternoon on it. Um, just like following accounts and then reposting stuff. And I ended up getting involved in these, like, you know, these super niche kind of internet communities. And like one of them, um, happened to be like the quote unquote Tumblr Catholics. So there was like this niche group of Catholics on Tumblr who would post like a range of like pietistic kind of kitschy stuff, but then also this really like ideological political stuff. And sadly that was kind of my first orientation to like, um, to Catholicism. I, I mean, amongst other things, but like, it, I don't know. It was kind of like for the worst though, because it became this echo chamber where like people would just reinforce these very narrow understandings of what's going on in society and blah, blah, blah. Um, but in addition to that, then like I would just follow these like these singer fandoms, like I'd follow like these dumb Beyonce fandoms. Um, and then I started posting GIFs. And one it like the worst part of it for me, like a couple months after I discovered Tumblr is when I went to study abroad in Spain. And already as someone who's like, you know, I'm not the most outgoing, I'm not the most social. Um, instead of like trying to challenge myself to go outside of my comfort zone and meet people in this kind of new, new environment, like I would just stay in my room and I would go on Tumblr for hours and hours. Um, so I, I see how like, it has such an atomizing effect, like being involved in these niche communities. Like, sure, on one hand, it can be affirming that you find other people who are like you. But for people who do have these kinds of, um, I don't know, like the tendency to keep to yourself, to like not be, um, I don't know, to be more introverted, I think it really exacerbates that um, the imperative to go outside and like meet people and be challenged by people whose ideas are different from yours. But I think it also breeds that kind of mentality in general for whoever uses it. So I don't know, I'm just curious to understand more about like, I don't know, do you, do you also see this kind of like atomizing effect on the culture that Tumblr and also another um, other websites have had on our culture in general? Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, an another another sort of uh, counter argument that I get is like, uh, you know, like teenagers are just like this, right? Mm -hmm. Like teenagers have these sort of out there views. They grow out of it, or they, you know, or sometimes they don't, right? Like, so you know, we have like people who are sixty years old and still like super goth in like a way that's kind of alienating, and that had nothing to do with the internet. And I, I, I agree with that. But the thing yeah. with the with the internet is that it's very different when you're encountering these ideas physically, like with a group of people who you're looking at. And I think there we have this tendency to like, on one, on one hand, we sort of superficially acknowledge like, you know, the internet itself and then, you know, computers itself, smartphones themselves, certain websites, the UI of these websites, these all, these all matter, but I don't think we appreciate it enough and like really like think about like, what is the impact of even doing this in a, a mediated way? Mm -hmm. um, so like, you know, getting, you know, getting sucked into these things and not actually, you know, like not having these same exposures in person or somehow like needing to um, physically do something to have access to certain information. It, it has like a, you know, a huge, a huge impact on us. Um, you know, another place where I think that's really, you know, striking is like with porn. Um, you know, I happen to like be pretty anti-porn just sort of in general. However, like, you know, there's a huge difference between like, you have to go to an adult theater or pay to get it on your television at home or like walk into an adult store and look through a, you know, a, a constrained selection and, you know, buy it. And like the cashier knows that you're buying it. Like th that's very different than just sort of like, yeah opening up an incognito tab and like going to town, right? Like, yeah. I, you know, I think this is like a very underappreciated thing. Like even the amount yeah, of like time a, that it takes. Yeah. Hmm. No, because yeah, it's like, as I was saying that like it, the kind of porn you access on, on your computer, especially for free, like 
contributes to this whole ethos of like atomization, total disconnection from any human being, which I mean, is what the essence of porn is. But even, but no, like if you go out to purchase it outside of your home, like at least there's some awareness that sex implies you're something outside of yourself. It's not purely like you in a bubble gratifying yourself. I don't know. Um, but then I also wanted to ask, so in the last episode you had on the computer room, you brought up something about uh, Tumblr and MKUltra. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's, I mean, this is, this is like sort of a joke, right? But um, um, my, my guest, my guest and I sort of have this, or, you know, that particular guest, um, we, we have, I, this ended up getting cut out, but we sort of think that, um, you know, a lot of the ideas that were seated on Tumblr, like, you know, maybe, and this is just, this is just like a hypothetical, like maybe they were like planted there because they do sort of, they do sort of alien, like a lot of these ideas alienate you from who you are and sort of like further this like sleepwalking mechanism that's already kind of baked into the internet. And I, I, you know, I feel, I just feel like there's something, it hasn't totally congealed with, you know, in my thinking, but I think there's like, there's something there. And I think it, I think the US government um, has been open about this in a sense, but hasn't been, you know, honest, like they're direct, they're sort of directing us in one direction, but they haven't been honest about the details um, that, you know, like you do get, like, you do get radicalized. There is, you know, it does have this huge impact on the culture. Um, you know, like, I don't think this is like Russian bots, right? You know, it's not, it's not something like that, but I think there's like, there's something about like, is, you know, is the pop culture that we're being exposed to online that we're like sort of swimming in, you know, is, is it shaping, you know, shaping our worldview and not in these like these not just in the sort of obvious ways of like, oh, the mainstream media is bad and like, oh, Russian yeah. bots, but is it like, does it even go a level deeper? And if you look at, you know, the way China talks about the internet or the way Russia even talks about the internet and its impact and the different things online that they make illegal, it's sort of like, like, it, it, like here's an example, like in China, um, like you know, certain kinds of fan fiction and fan engagement are legal, right? And I think like, you know, I don't have enough information and I don't, you know, and again, like it hasn't like totally taken shape for me, but I feel like there's something, there's something there. There's some reason, like there's something that they see that's it's bad for people. And I don't think it's just like, oh, you know, fandom is like queer and they're threatened by queerness. I don't think that's it. I think it's something about, about in, like the way people are engaging online that they see as dangerous and weakening in some way. And I could also see that somehow being encouraged in the United States. But this is like one of these more esoteric ideas I have. And like, I, you know, I, I don't have a, it's not a, that a research. I could see it, you know, but even, I mean, even if it's not an intentional plot, it definitely does further in. I mean, I think it does further corporate and political interests of those in power. I mean, I think that's hard to deny. Right. Mm. Well, that being said, what do you think about, I mean, like what differences do you see between the effect that Tumblr and then like newer apps like TikTok is having on, on younger people, if any? I think, that, I think it's very much the same, mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, like the interesting thing about uh, TikTok is like, it creates the illusion of um, celebrity and even gives you opportunities to earn money without giving you any like power. Yeah. Uh, whereas like on, you know, like there's, there's certain, there's in very rare cases have people, um, you know, been able to break out from TikTok and like become celebrities. But often it's like, it seems very sort of flimsy um, and like not, not really like durable in the same way. Like there's almost too much noise right? Like you have like a Charlie D'Amelio or something where it, but it's like, that's like, you, there, there isn't that, like that many people like that. It's like, it's sort of rare. You, you know, there's the hype house, these, it, 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 but it's, they also don't have like the same kind of influence. Whereas like Tumblr, it was much, it was much more like collaborative with other people and much more connective with other people. Mm -hmm. So you could become, you, you know, like micro celebrity on Tumblr to me, like functioned a little bit differently than it does on on TikTok. I think TikTok 
makes you think that you're connecting more and that it's easier to climb the ranks, but further atomizes you. Um, and I also think it's much easier to learn things on, on TikTok just because of the, the nature of the app. You know, TikTok originally, like before it was Musical.ly, it was, um, I forget exactly what it was called, but it, it was supposed to be an education app. The, the idea was these short videos, if you watched a bunch of them, uh, you, would, you would learn better. Um, and I think, but I think that's still true. It's like the original iteration of this app failed miserably because it was like kind of boring and like, you know, no one wants to learn about science in this way. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, I've, I've often thought like you could, you could learn um, a language, pro you know, if you're doing like dedicated study, if you supplemented it with like French TikTok, you'd probably start picking it up really quickly. Um, I feel like I learned a lot about cooking just by looking at a lot like because you're you're getting so much information that if you curated it, you you'd be in you know you'd get you'd it'd be in pretty good shape. So yeah. it has like a lot of so it's not just going to apply for things that are constructive like cooking or language learning or science. It's also going to like slowly condition you um, in 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 other ways. Um, and you know, again, like I think like the propaganda stuff isn't as obvious as like, oh, like it wants you to sympathize with with Russia or Ukraine or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Or it wants you to think the Chinese government is great. I think it's like it's it's even more insidious. Like, is the way we conceive of music different because of TikTok? Um, do we yeah. think of our you know, a lot of people say they yeah. think in tweets. What does it mean to think in TikTok videos? Right? Like there's like little things mm -hmm. like that that are more structural. Um that I think have a big impact on you, just just in the same way Tumblr, you know, in a lot of ways had had an impact on the way people are even thinking about things. Um, yeah, you know, different humor styles. You know, it's it, it's it's a really big, a big and broad topic. Yeah, no, and it makes me think like the difference between the written style in Tumblr versus the audio visual in TikTok. Because for me, in addition to like posting pictures and gifs, like. I feel like my impulse to start writing like articles and essays was like inspired by Tumblr because I would see people do these like micro, I don't know, these micro essays. And then I was like, oh, let me try doing this. And the more I did it, like people would encourage me to like, well, why don't you actually try publishing? So now that you say like, I realize without Tumblr, I probably wouldn't have thought to try doing that. But then at the same time, like, for younger people, as time goes on, the written word isn't as, um, it's not as stimulating. Like people aren't going to want to learn from reading a little micro analysis post. And I think this is where TikTok comes in. And like I see in my work with, with uh, younger people that like they're constantly bringing up TikTok. Like as you said, like what, if I play a song, they're like, oh, that's the TikTok song. And I'm like, I, I had no idea that this song was a TikTok craze at any point. But then with like actual information about, I don't know, social issues, historical events, um, like young people will send me these TikToks and be like, oh, did you know about this and that? And like, it, what, it, what gets me especially though is these TikTokers who claim to be like, oh, I'm gonna expose like the real story behind like this historical event or this historical figure with the history books aren't telling you. And people are like, see, you know, this is what they've been hiding for us all along. And I'm like, well, what if they just pulled that out of their ass? Like, how do you know that's real? And then what ends up happening is like you keep, you know, it, it becomes this echo chamber where if somebody challenges your point of view or your opinion, like you don't have the tools to actually engage in a meaningful conversation. It's just like now they've become the enemy who's challenging what I heard from the TikTokers I follow. So again, like back to this, uh, you know, corporate and political interests, like, I think if anything, the, the main effect that TikTok can have is like, it creates more and more divisiveness to the point that like, I don't know, you just keep feeding these narratives to people and they have no means to actually think through them. And, and again, be challenged and challenge, challenge others, you know? Yeah. And I mean, like the, you know, with the history thing, like, um, it also, I think probably, I, I don't know if you're speaking of like, you know, teenagers, right. When you say yeah. young people, but mm -hmm. like, you know, you and I probably learned these, these stories and, you know, these, about these events, uh, through, not just through a book, but through a teacher who we saw in real life. Um, and I think that, you know, 
when it's when it's mediated through Zoom, you really it's much easier to tune it out. It's not as personal. So you really, yeah. if you're learning at all, you really are just learning through a book. Um, so even even if the information is flawed, um, the way we received it in the first place is so much different. Um, and it's maybe you know not that it makes it easier to dismiss if you receive it in this other way, but like your relationship with it has changed. Um, and you're, you know, a, what you even think it is like, like it, it's, it changes the whole, the whole game and like how you remember it and, you know, how important it seems. So there's, a, there's a lot yeah. of dimensions to it. Yeah. And like the other thing that, because, you know, I, I teach like philosophy, theology, that kind of stuff. Like sometimes these, like it, it's mostly teenagers, they'll show me these like TikTok philosophers or like people talking about religion and it's always this person speaking this kind of like very smug, skeptical way that's, you know, very, uh, very compelling because they seem so confident. They seem so convinced that like, and what I'm going to tell you is different from, you know, the mainstream narrative from what, you know, those in power say. Um, and they just like believe it because of the posturing, because of the way they're performing. And I'm like, but wait, did you actually sit and think about what they're saying? Or are you just regurgitating it because they sound cool or they sound like, you know, they know what they're talking about. Um, and that's like, this is my biggest fear is that we're convinced that what these people say are true just because of the way they're presenting the information. And then we lose the capacity to think critically and engage with ideas for ourselves. And like, I don't know, I just get afraid when I see teenagers regurgitating sub tiktokers say and there's no nuance like there's no um like there's no original thought there's no sense that like i can think through this myself and come up with my own understanding or my own idea uh, because we're losing the tools we're losing the capacity to do so if we're only getting our information from a resource like tiktok i mean it's good that they're telling you about it because i think like one way to sort of you know, fight back against that is just talking about it and putting people to task. I mean, this happens to me all the time and you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's embarrassing to admit, but I think important, like I'll, I'll fall down a rabbit hole and I'll like be like gung-ho about a theory. Um, and I don't real like, I don't realize how stupid it is or like how poorly thought out it is. Like even after writing like tons of like 6,000 words of stuff on it, right? Or, or more mm -hmm. until I get on a podcast and someone starts asking me about it. I'm like, I can't, like, I don't, right? Like, like using your voice and having to think about it on the spot without notes in a free, you know, in a free way where someone can challenge it um, and you don't feel threatened necessarily, but like you're, you're really just, you're just engaging with the material. Um, it goes, it goes a lot, goes a very long way. So, I mean, I think, you know, one way to combat, like you can't get rid of TikTok at this point um, no. and people are going to stay plugged in, but you could combat it by just talking about it. And uh, not letting it all, not letting the engagement happen only through text, um, because when yeah. you're sending it back and forth, right, then like, you know, that's, it's still in this like myopic kind of narrow view. But if you're, if you have to physically engage with it, then it somehow becomes different. Hmm. I think what gets to me, though, is that the primary concern of a lot of the young people I, I work with is like, wanting to have the right opinion wanting to be on the right side as opposed to having an original one like there's no i i don't perceive an imperative to originality or to nuance it's like we want to be right and i mean i think that's endemic to american culture going back to the beginning um but if that really is the only um the only thing that's important then i feel like we're screwed like if we just want to be right because we're afraid of being immoral we're afraid of being canceled like then what do we have left? You know, like moralism cannot sustain a culture. I don't know. That, that's what I get afraid of when I when I hear this. I mean, things. I think I think you're right. And I mean, I you know, there's for the people who are interested in in thinking or this sort of like you know, like I feel like there's sort of like a backlash against what's the social media consumption that started when we were teenagers, and you have people who um, are you know do like move towards theory and. Right. And then what they get sort of attacked and psyoped by, you have to monetize your takes. And then, you know, you have the, the people, you have like people who are Twitter power users, right? Which is the sort of intellectualized 
you know, sleepwalking TikToker, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and it's, it's jockeying to like, who has the best, the best take. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I think you're right. It, it, it's, it's scary and it's sad, um, but you know, like what it's so, it's so baked into the culture. Um, and there's so, you know, there's so many, there, there's so much pressure. I, you know, I think it's even like filters down to something like, you know, how often do people read for leisure? right like it's you know or like mm-hmm. you know want to engage with different ideas just because it's the exercise of having an interesting conversation as opposed to like i need to read this so i can understand this and then have the most original take and then write about it and then hopefully someone notices it and you know it's like you know it's it's or you're you want to be like sufficiently woke or anti-woke or whatever it's it's mm-hmm. it's kind of sad Yeah. And like this makes me think of just over the last week, seeing what's been going on in Russia and Ukraine, like what I perceive for, at least from a lot of the people that I follow on the internet is um, like this impulse to post something, whether it's like pray for Ukraine or donate to this charity or whatever, um, as a means to distract from the fact that like so much of um i don't know i feel like it's a way to project our sense of like emptiness our sense of being um disillusioned with our own daily lives so like if we can point to some issue out there in the world that's very removed from my daily experience and like i don't really have to face the fact that you know i'm not satisfied i am bored i'm not i don't know what i'm living for um and i like i see that in myself too like no, I haven't been posting about the Ukraine, but I, I fixate on some big issue as a way to distract from my own disillusionment. Um, and I'm like, I don't know. I wonder, is there a way to like, how do we face that sense of uh, atomization, disillusionment with our daily lives? Um, while still taking seriously that, yes, like there are real issues out there. Like, is there some synthesis that brings together like my daily life, my daily reality with what's happening out there across the, you know, across the world? Yeah. You know, I, I think about this a lot too. Um, like I, I mean, I have this like very pathetic thought sometimes, like if I just like logged off and like quit everything, like you know, then what, right? Um, and, and that's not to say I don't have friends, you know, friendships or relationships or, you know, whatever, you know, nothing else going on in my life, but it's such like, it's such an anchoring point. And I know it's, that's true for a lot of people, even if they're not, you know, willing to admit it. Um, I mean, when I think about that, you know, I was offline for a, about five years. I wasn't totally offline, but I was, I was like, I, I mostly lurked or was, you know, a not like an, an anonymous anime app. I wasn't quite as online as I am today. Um, and I just didn't care about stuff because I was like physically moving a lot. Yeah. And I think that's, again, like really underappreciated. And what makes it worse is like, you know, a lot of the opportunities people have to exercise are like in these very sort of like intense sort of mind numbing ways. Like if you think about, uh, Barry's boot camp or um, Soul Cycle, or even like more, like, you know, more affordable iterations of these exercise classes. It's like blaring music, you're pushing yourself until you feel sick, right? Yeah. Like there's very little opportunity to sort of move around in a, in a way where you're connecting with other people. And it's like, uh, it's, it's like truly leisurely or like exercise in a healthier way. And then the few, the few opportunities you do have for that, that's organized and in a community, it's like, like by burners and kind of like gross and like it doesn't respect personal space so um yeah like so when I was offline I I I was I did circus arts and I was a dancer and like that I mean it was just my my experience of life was so much different because like I you know I all I cared about was like my husband my neighborhood my dance classes my my circus performances my religion and it's like, who can't, you know, like, I knew about the news and I cared about it and I cared about these more like macro subcultures, but like my concerns were my immediate environment. So how do you get people to one, move around more, but two, like feel like their immediate environment is offering them something. So then, I don't know. So like, what do you suggest to someone 
who knows that like, yeah, like I'm fixating on these macro issues because I'm disillusioned with my life. Like how does someone begin to take an interest in their own everyday life? Um, I mean, you have to, you have to find people, which is, it, it's, it's easier said than done. Mm. Um, I, hobbies, I think are a, a big help. Um, I think there are a lot of, uh, hobbies that still are like grounded in the real world. Um, I usually like seek out niche ones because I find that's where the most passionate people are. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, in New York, when I felt, I, I lived in New York in college and, um, you know, I felt like very overwhelmed, uh, by the competitive nature of the field I was in. So I like took up puppetry because my, my logic was nobody gets into puppets if they don't really just love puppets right and so the people i met there were just like it was just you know it was they're passionate about the 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 hobby the act right they it wasn't it wasn't about anything other than what it was about um and it's i mean it's 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 hard and i i don't i don't blame people who find it you know who consider it an insurmountable task it's you can't even do it in every city let alone you know the suburbs or rural america so yeah it's you know try your best but there's there's not a lot you can do yeah i don't know i mean for me like i know that i need people who i can openly talk about that sense of disillusionment with they're like people who also share this question of like what makes my boring everyday life meaningful and interesting because like if you can share that question with someone if you can actually talk about it then like it starts to open your eyes to see the fact that no like these things that can be boring and mundane actually have a, a value it actually gives meaning um so i don't know i feel like community and i, I mean that's kind of what you're saying can play a big role so if you can take that step then yeah like it's possible but sometimes it's easier said than done to take that step you know mm. and i I, th- I think also like um an underrated sort of aspect of this too is like having sort of like local friction um like one thing i noticed is like um you know and i say this with love um my mom is sort of a gossip right and she i swear this is a salient point but um you know she doesn't really when i grew up she was it was always like you know so and so is doing this and did you see her daughter and whatever and but it was like a way she connected with people and that's been supplanted by trump covid uh, you know russia and i you know i think there like sort of a lack of like local gossip or like yeah. local local conflict um plays a big role in this as well um so like you know it's not it's not enough to just like be seeing people like you there needs like there's there needs to be like you need to be really grounded in it and you need to be like really concerned with it um so like these other things don't distract you from what's going on in front of you yeah no I definitely see how much um I don't know for me because I grew up in a suburban environment like I you know like you I went to college in New York but before that um I kind of felt this um not a nostalgia because I never had it but like a longing for that kind of experience for like, you know, there's local stuff going on, whether it's conflict or gossip or like communal gatherings, political, whatever. Um, I think the environment you're in largely shapes the way you interact with people and the way, really the way you perceive yourself. Cause like suburbia is built to atomize. It's built so that like you have your internal affairs in the home and then you don't really know what's going on in the neighbor's houses unless you make that step to go find out. Um, and I just see how much, like, as I've gotten older, like, I want that kind of, um, like you said, that local friction, like, I want those kinds of interactions, because those are the things that make everyday life interesting, rather than having to ship post on the internet, or like, fixate on these macro issues that really don't pertain that much to my actual life. You know, um, did you so you're, I know you're saying with your mom, but like, do you feel like the way you grew up, the environment you grew up in, like, consisted of that kind of local friction or was it mostly absent you know I'm, I'm sort of weird because like I've I, I'm very like very like socially anxious and like and, like one of the big reasons I keep my, my zoom camera off is because like I can't even like I'm so bad at like making eye contact I can't yeah. even look at the screen right like, so yeah. when I when I had when I had the opportunity to dive full into like being online I, I took it 
Um, and I've take I've had like big breaks in my life, but I've always been, um, you know, I've, I've mostly always been like very anchored to a screen because I'm, it's, it's hard for me to feel comfortable, um, in these social environments. And I think like that big break I was talking about where I was, you know, dancing a lot, like that was probably like the first time in my life where I was like completely unconcerned, um, and, or, you know, not completely, but mostly unconcerned. And I felt like really, really physically present. Uh, but growing up, it, my sisters, uh, like certainly, you know, would describe like a very vibrant uh, social life, but I was always very, uh, I, I retreated probably too much, but that's why, that's why people think I'm like 40, right? Like, had, like, I remember the internet from, you know, from the early 2000s onward, it's, I was just, I, you know, I got online when I was a kid, like a, like a child, like an elementary school child. Yeah. So that's where I grew up. Mm. No, and it's, it's interesting because like, I, you know, growing up in that suburban environment, then living in New York, um, after I finished undergrad and like settled into a full-time job, I ended up moving into another urban kind of area, mostly like an ethnic working class neighborhood. And I went partially because I was longing for that kind of environment, which I knew would be very different from the suburban um the suburban experience that I grew up with and as much as like it was super appealing and like so much more lively so much more human on so many levels I found that I didn't have the tools to integrate myself into it because I mean first the cultural barriers but just dealing with small conflicts like in the apartment building like having to deal with mice having to deal with really loud neighbors having to deal with my car getting broken into um, there was just a certain social cultural sensibility that I lacked and I was just like damn I really find this to be so much more appealing and yet I am incapable of living like that you know um, so I don't know like for me it's been a big question of how do I embrace the fact that yeah like I have a certain history I grew up in a certain kind of environment which I didn't find ideal but this is where I'm at these are the cards that I've been dealt and like how do I make, um, I don't know, like, how do I live a life that is satisfying knowing that, no, not everything's picturesque and ideal. Um, I don't know. That's, that's just like been a big question on my mind lately. Yeah. It's, you know, it's hard, right? Because I, I mean, I've seen a lot of people try to like assimilate into these communities that are attractive to them for various reasons. Maybe they like the food or the music or the aesthetics, mm -hmm. but you, you can't, right? Like it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a problem that, it's 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 just it's really hard if you have like nothing anchoring you in that community um you you can't just sort of slot yourself in and it's not to say like you were doing something wrong it's you know I've tried it myself but it's it's you know the only way in really is if you have a you know a partner who is of that cultural background or you know is from that neighborhood or something um and then but then the other side of the coin is like uh you know, people who did grow up in suburban environments try to simulate these environments, these communities, even in real life. And it just never works because it's too branded or like detached somehow or too strategic. Um, so that's why I think like, you know, if you're coming from a background uh, like ours, all you can really do is some is go from a place of passion, which is probably why also people, you know, more and more people are becoming you know, our, our fans, right. Are, you know, are really invested in Marvel or something. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, the healthier expression of that is like, uh, you know, you love playing the violin and like, you know, what does it mean to be a violinist and like really integrate that into your life? It doesn't mean playing violin all the time. It, there's a certain sensibility attached to it. And then finding which expression of that sensibility, you know, feels that feels right to you and, and trying to do something there, or it's, you know, you live somewhere and, um, it's not culturally or religiously grounded. So you can really participate in a certain way, harder than a hobby, but like, you know, definitely one way to do it. Yeah, no. And like, I think for me, in a sense, like, yeah, I was definitely fetishizing the neighborhood that I moved into, but it was also an attempt to retrieve something that had been lost from my own cultural legacy, because like suburbia, everyone, at least all the white people, we were totally assimilated, like totally detached from our cultural roots. Very few people were like straight up wasps. Whereas for me, like I, so like my background's Greek and Italian and I had some connection to those cultural roots, but 
I found that just being in that particular environment really worked to like gnaw at all those roots that remained. So it's like, yeah, in name, I'm Greek and Italian. In name, I'm Mediterranean. But like the cultural sensibility, the way that I live and conceive of my identity is like just super removed from that. And I feel like, I don't know, the experience of assimilation is contributes to this atomization. It makes you feel like, I don't know, this kind of sense of being lost or empty. So I don't know, like when I would visit neighborhoods, like, I don't know, like in Newark, New Jersey, there's still like a little bit of an Italian enclave or like in Queens in New York, like huge Greek enclave. And I would always find myself jealous of the ethnic barrio because I don't know, like things were more lively. People just had a different way of living and interacting. So I feel like I was attempting to kind of like recreate that for myself. But even if I, I moved into like, if, if I moved into a story, like I know that I would kind of stand out like a sore thumb because sure I'm Greek, but I didn't grow up like that, you know? So I don't know. I think it's like you said, like you have to find realistic ways to kind of build that community and, and connect. But um then no but i i wanted to refer to something from your your last episode again when you're talking about like the trans phenomenon and like how these narratives are constructed how people start to i don't know like think about their identity as they transition and something i was thinking about i mean kind of going in a different direction um is i guess like I, I I feel like I'm seeing more and more of this bent towards the transracial kind of front. Like you're seeing, I'm seeing, I feel like I'm seeing a lot of these assimilated white people who are cut off from their ethnic roots, who are kind of identifying with other cultures. Like I think about Ariana Grande, who's, you know, started out appropriating black culture and now she's Asian fishing, as they're saying. And it's like, sure, it's scandalous and ridiculous, but when I see that, it's like, well, if these people don't have any roots, don't identify with something larger than themselves. And like, and also with the, if we continue with this narrative of like, okay, my identity is self-constructed, it's based on not any like given circumstances, but what I feel internally, I just feel like this is, this is the direction we're headed in. I don't know. Do you feel like do you feel like that's coming? Do you feel like that's going to become more of a normal narrative at some point soon? I think that predates um, people. I, I That predates, I, I don't want to say like the transgender sort of like uh, explosion, right? You know, I don't want to um, some, you know, somehow like minimize that. But I think it's, that's, that's been, um, that's been in the water in America since day one. I mean, I'm actually like pretty passionate about this because like mm -hmm. you, um, you know, my mother is an immigrant and I always felt maybe not resentment, but like this detachment from my culture. Um, my my dad comes from an American culture that is, uh, you know, very vibrant and uh, you know rooted, uh, and I just didn't, I didn't connect with with either with either one. And I felt I was so angry when I like um, you know encountered she's she's Italian and I encountered Italian Americans who had no problem saying they were Italian and were like divorced from the culture right I was like I grew up hearing the language and you know and I and I'm not Italian how could you be Italian you know it was just like this yeah. it was blew my mind um so I became like obsessed with like this idea of like hyphenated Americans mm -hmm. and these alternative histories that people construct like you know we've been we've always been transnational trans ethnic transracial I mean th I mean think about it all the people who identify as Native American and it's based entirely on constructed or alternative histories, all the people who say they're Irish and are, I mean, you know, this idea that you could be one eighth, one sixteenth, one, even one fourth mm -hmm. something, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, right? You know, yeah. you either are something or you're not. Um, and, you know, I often say to people like, how could you be surprised that we have, Rachel, you know, a Rachel Dolezal yeah. uh, or, you know, even, you know, less obvious expressions when, we grew up conditioned to say, um, I, you know, I am Irish when you don't like, what the hell do you know about Ireland? Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> what connection do you have to like, it's, I mean, and you see it in, in how um, new religious movements that were born in America mm -hmm. become expressed, uh, new age stuff, how we sell, we market our smoothies. I mean, it's just, it's a huge problem. And I, I don't think it's coming. I think we've, we've been there and it lays the groundwork for so much of our identity troubles. Um, if only we embrace like 
you know, if, if there's such a thing as being Floridian and proud, right? Like, or Texan and, and proud in a way that was not mocked mercilessly, uh, you know, perhaps people wouldn't need to reach in the furthest uh, corners of their, their you know, ancestry.com profile for some shred of identity. Mm. But do you think it's going to become acceptable at some point soon? Because like they kind of crucified Rachel Dolezal. It's already, it, I mean, it's already acceptable. It's just like, don't get caught, right? Like mm. it's, it's been, look at Elizabeth Warren, right? It, yeah. it only, you know, she, she like, <laughs> she was playing share, right? It's, it's been, it's, it's been acceptable. It's just in what ways are you go you know, do, do you frame it? Um, I think mm. this thing that like, anyone would be surprised that this is happening when it's been encouraged, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it goes back to something that you you guys were saying in that episode about this narrative of authenticity and it breeds this sense of, I think, I think it was you who said it, this like permanent aspiration because like, at what point are we fully ourselves? Like there's always something else we want to aspire to be, whether it's a different gender, a different race, whatever. Um, and I think like what's scary to me is that the authenticity narrative kind of blinds us to the fact that the narrative of who I am authentically is being dictated to me by someone else in power, whether it's again, political power, corporate power, advertisements and algorithm. Um, I don't know, it's like, it's so deceptive in the sense of like, no, like I'm being my real self, but like, but where am I getting these ideas from? And at what point am I done? At what point am I fulfilled, you know? Right, like what, you know, like what even underpins what you like, like, is it, I feel like that's a, you know, it's a very basic, like low hanging fruit question, but it's like, are you maximizing pleasure? Like, you know, you know what is happiness, yes. which I, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, some like weed smoking little sister, right? But like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing to define that I don't think anyone really has. It's, and that's why they're so lost because they don't, they they don't know what the goal is and what the end point is. Yeah. Mm. So last thing that I want to ask you before we wrap up, kind of tying together, I guess, the, um, the atomization kind of piece and also the question about like authentic gender identity. So something that I see, I guess, I mean, has always been part of advertisement kind of culture, but I see more and more on people's personal social media pages, specifically having to do with men is like the whole phenomenon of thirst traps, especially on Instagram, like the fact that it's becoming normal for men to want to get attention for physical appearance, sexual appeal. Um, I don't know. Like, I'm really curious to understand what's, what you think is behind it. Because for me, it's like, traditionally, this is a feminine trait, like to want to be gazed upon for your sex appeal, for aesthetics. Um, I don't know, like, what do you see behind it? What do you think the implications are? Cause like, I don't know, I've been trying to wrap my head around it for a while. I, I think the internet um, does a good job of, uh, you know, disconnecting us from our, our physical bodies. And again, that sounds like an obvious point but I think it runs like so much deeper than we, we really realize or if we sort of, if we can intellectualize it like I don't think we really own it yet. Um, and you know, this manifests in all sorts of ways. Um, but, you know, on top of that for men, they're, you know, they're in a moment where they really, it really is easy to be an invisible man and nobody wants to be invisible or overlooked. Um, and there's all sorts of different expressions and sort of uh, fighting back against that frustration. You could uh, be a provocateur online and be part of like frog Twitter, or you could be a bodybuilder um, or you're an incel. And all of these things are sort of, you know, it's not exclusively attacking this issue but it's it's definitely a big part of it um, and, and one expression is probably like you know this if this is the currency of the environment that I'm in 99% of the time I may as well um, you know I I can't imagine what it's like to be a man and it's like your choices are ignored completely unless you have some other sort of exceptional aspect uh, like you're willing to you know post racial slurs in like a sufficiently humorous way, right? You know, something like this, or like, maybe I'll try what women are doing and post my body. It's, you know, it's worth a shot, right? Um, and, and then if you do it once and it gets um, 
positive feedback, what, like, why wouldn't you do it again? It's, it's a much, you know, I'm sure it feels much better than just nobody looking at you at all. Yeah, no, and it's, it, it's these larger questions about um, individual agency, not just for men, but also for women. Um, under the kind of cultural conditions we're in, like what, again, what gives our everyday lives meaning, but what also makes us useful, which what makes us feel like we're living with the purpose, you know? Um, but I think it goes back to, again, like beginning on the micro level, beginning, beginning on the communal level and finding people you can actually have these conversations with and ask these questions because outside of that, then I just feel like it's so easy to get trapped in the web where like everything's just liquid floating around, you know? Yeah, and, and you know, if you're with other people and you're you're like physically in and in, you know, in an environment that's not just you, it's, it, you know, I feel like if you're online, you really only have yourself and you're constantly looking at yourself, right. even if you aren't literally looking at yourself. So anything that, you know, takes you out of your own head is probably very helpful. Yeah. So before we go, anything that you want to plug? Um, you could follow me on Twitter at default underscore friend or on my Substack, uh, defaultfriend.substack.com. Um, it is, it is very weird, but, uh, hopefully, hopefully you enjoy it. No, well worth reading for sure. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. All right.